We are cooking with gas and we don't care about the consequences. Overnight, using a gas stove over an electric stove became a signifier that you are a member of the right in America and a proud American and you will not listen to the government no matter what research they cite about what is safe for you to use and what is not. I'm Jessica Burbank. This is The Conversation. And today, to discuss this, uh, we're delighted to be joined by Chris Lehman, who's the D.C. Bureau Chief for The Nation, also a contributing editor with The Baffler. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me, Jessica. Delighted to be here. So let's talk a little bit about this. Do they just want to distract us from their pending uh, mission to cut Social Security? Or do they really care about gas stoves? <clears throat> um, well, you know, the short answer is yes to the first half of uh, your question. Um, but of course, it's more complicated than that in the sense that, you know, the American right is now addicted to outrage. That addiction escalated dramatically under the presidency of Donald Trump, who is just a walking grievance machine. Um, and, you know, um, you, some of his most reliable lines at his rallies concern, concern things like, the outrage of wind turbines um, and toilets, uh, you know, that are meant to conserve water that don't flush properly, which is clearly TMI from our ex-president, but uh, so be it. And uh, allied um, sort of complaints that, you know, these newfangled um, innovations in the broader political economy our personal affronts. And that is what's key, I think, is uh, instead of debating on their merits, the pros and cons of regulating gas stoves uh, more robustly or phasing in an eventual ban of gas stoves, uh, the rhetoric, rhetoric on the right went straight to, you know, these liberals are coming for your gas stoves. So it that's an easy template. You can just insert like all the gun nut kind of rhetoric there. And in fact, you know, Matt Gates tweeted out something um, to the effect of you'll take my gas stove from my cold, dead hands, which, you know, first question is, how how do your hands get cold next to a gas stove? You're not using it properly. And maybe if you didn't light the flame, that could explain why you're dead. I don't know. Um, but yeah, this is all part of, um, you know, the seemingly bottomless need on the American right to create this uh, culture of intense grievance, usually in the, you know, mad old white uncle mode. Um, you remember things like the war on Christmas, which it was an annual right at Fox News. You would have, you know, all of these um, sort of um, spokes anchors lined up all across the uh, primetime schedule on Fox, loudly complaining anytime someone said season's greetings instead of Merry Christmas. And that morphed into the, quote, war on Christmas, um, which last time I checked, you know, um, the, <clears throat> the generals in that war sustained pretty heavy casualties. <laughs> I don't think it's coming back. And that's that's the other thing is they, you know, wear these these out very rapidly. I mean, I, you know, I wrote this piece on the gas stove war last week. And, you know, I'm already seeing um, there was something on Fox News about Xboxes, you know, <laughs> like the entire consumer economy is apparently booby trapped for these people. It's it's quite an amazing thing. Um, 
And now it's the M&Ms, right? Oh, M&Ms. How could I forget? Yeah, Tucker Carlson had a whole segment on that. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll see some big reveal at at the Super Bowl. And I, yeah, it's very hard, honestly, even though it's kind of my job to track this stuff, to to keep up um, without a, a long series of, I don't know, um, visits to a spa or something. <laughs> it's exhausting, right? Because there's cognitive dissonance there. There's the libertarian ethos of, you know, these bureaucrats are trying to control your life with this regulation, which at the end of the day we're seeing is consumer protection. And who's really being helped when they say we don't need consumer protection? It's the corporations who are profiting. But exactly. these same people that are preaching these libertarian ethos really are also trying to infringe upon a lot of our personal freedoms, like the LGBTQ plus community, yep. the right to be themselves in public. What do you make of that cognitive? Yeah, no, it is. I'm, I'm glad you point out, pointed out that paradox because it is, it runs very deep and uh, yeah, it becomes, um, you know, that is not a joking matter. The, the targeting of the LGBTQ community, um, which let us not forget sort of grew out of the moral panic over critical race theory. Um, that panic kind of flopped in the 2022 midterms. So now they're ramping up on these other fronts, even though Rick DeSantis, of course, who's um, angling um, for the presidential nomination for the GOP is still, you know, um, he has just banned African-American studies in um, Florida high school. So he's still, you know, holding down all the culture wars at once. Um, but yeah, the other, you know, this is something I, I meant to, say in the piece I wrote, but, um, you know, again, I think I, I just got too fatigued. <laughs> um, but it used to be, you know, the common critique of totalitarianism in the middle 20th century was that it, you know, it, it was obviously um, morally um, objectionable in all sorts of other ways, but it allegedly politicized every aspect of domestic life that, you know, you would have these uh, fascist youth brigades spying on their parents. You would have these propaganda initiatives targeting outgroups. And the weird thing we're seeing now on the American right is they are taking up that intense political politicization of every facet of life from public school curricula to gas stoves, to wind turbines, to toilets, what have you, or, you know, Xboxes and M&Ms. Um, it's all political. And, um, and I think the, you know, classical conservatives in the mid 20th century would be appalled to see this happening because <laughs> it is, in fact, weaponizing the state, to use a favorite term of the uh, GOP House these days, in the service of these um, bigoted culture wars when, you know, they, they, they get aligned with the worst elements of the American right. I liked how you wrote in this piece uh, how similar Fox News programming is to stuff you would see on Facebook, but also this intertwinement between Fox News and the Gateses of the Republican Party. It's quite scary how they've created a machine where people no longer look to them to govern or create good policy or deliver public goods, but instead be on the right side of these culture war issues. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, the, the culture war is kind of all that the American right has at this moment. They're not interested in governing. We saw that with the long, um, you know, the Freedom Caucus's attempt to, to block uh, the nomination of Kevin McCarthy to the speakership. That was all about um, 
getting key uh, committee chairmanships in the House and getting rules changes to put these kind of issues front and center. So now we have, I joked about it earlier, but this new House committee on the quote, weaponization of government is gonna be looking into things like the Twitter files, which um, I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole, but it is basically, you know, speaking of things that are tedious, it's just a chronicle of content moderation on a major social media site. It doesn't, you know, um, show any nefarious censorship on any ideological grid. It's just, um, again, an, another way in which some use of a consumer product is being, in this case, not even regulated by the government, but by the private owners of, and operators of a platform. And even that's objectionable. Um, you know, one of the uh, people I interviewed for this piece wrote a um, book on the recent, um, you know, decline of libertarian thought. And he said, you know, increasingly libertarians want to live in, in what um, any sort of rational political scientist would recognize as a failed state. And a failed state is not a, a place where you want to live, <laughs> to put it mildly. Right, definitely not. And I mean, from my perspective, I'm seeing what's going on in, in D.C. They say, you know, they're bureaucratic. They're mm -hmm. acting like a nanny state, calling their policies overwhelmingly paternalistic. But to me, it's like, can you deliver some public goods? Can you ensure that Social Security is enough for people to live on in it. I saw someone post on Twitter, they've pretty much turned into an arms dealer. But this lack of good journalism and this distraction, yeah. I think, is is complicit with this development. No, that's a, a really good point. And, you know, the reason the right, you know, there, there are two basic reasons why the right always recurs to this sort of culture war first agenda. Um, as I said earlier, you know, the first is to keep the base engaged and the outrage flowing. Um, but the second is exactly to, you know, make sure that no one pays attention to rampant tax cuts for the wealthy, um, to plans to roll back, um, you know, outlays for essential social goods and services like Social Security and Medicare. That is the agenda behind the coming showdown over the debt ceiling. Um, again, uh, the right doesn't care about fiscal responsibility, especially since this debt ceiling showdown is about money that was already spent, a good deal of it under the Trump administration that, you know, the Republicans in Congress were more than happy to sign off on at the time. So, you know, again, it's, it's you know, when the wheel spins and they are the out party in the White House, um, that's when they demonize government spending. Um, and again, the reason that they want you to talk about M&Ms and Xboxes and gas stoves um, is that they they are, in fact, you know, planning to go after Social Security and, and Medicare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is just such a, a good perspective on the matter. And just to to break down something that seems like a silly controversy and yeah. put it in the greater, mm -hmm. you know, political scope of what's happening in the country is super useful. So the article is Republicans are cooking up their dumbest controversy yet. Chris Lehman for The Nation. Where else can our viewers find your work? Oh, I'm, you know, I, I, um, The Baffler is a um, place where I, I contribute from time to time. I uh, finished a tour recently as uh, a uh, book reviewer for The New Republic. So there's a lot of that stuff there. Um, gosh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> on, on the conversation.
So amazing. Great. Thank you so much for talking with us, Chris. We also have your Twitter handle as well for, for folks who are watching. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I'm joined with Ji Hin Park, who was born in North Korea in 1968. And after experiencing illness, poverty, famine, and intimidation, first escaped at age 29, and then secondly escaped uh, with the help of the United Nations in 2008, and has had an amazing journey since then, and is now a human rights activist after living in Greater Manchester for many years. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Thank you. So why don't you you walk us through what it was just first like leaving North Korea in the late six or in at age twenty nine? Oh, when I lived in North Korea, you know, the I was a brainwashed child and also adult too. Is from uh, our government because it's North Korea government always teaching to us. North Korea is great country, not only it's Asians, it's on all, all over the world, and the socialism is a great uh, uh, ideology. So we believed that is uh, Kim Il-sung and uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, but we didn't uh, get information from outside the countries, and we didn't know the, how outside the country people live, and you know, the daily, daily to life. We never knew, we never know that about that. So in North Korea was uh, it's a distribution country, this only one country in our world. So government gave to us rice, it's the, twice a month, but in uh, early 1990s, North Korea government stopped the rice, and then people the starving, starving. So early 1990s, many people died of starvation, and also, you know, the, my uncle died of starvation in front of me, and then my younger brother left his military and came home, but he was really dangerous at the moment. So. My eldest father told to us, leave this country and save your younger brother. So that is the, why I decided to uh, leave North Korea in first time. And so was it more of a, a push than a pull, right? You didn't hear about a pathway to leave North Korea. It was more so that, you know, your basic needs were not being met in the country. Oh, I didn't get any information in you know the another side in China, uh, because but I always worried about that the, when we not success this journey and what happened in my life because that is the socialism countries, you never leave this country. So if you leave this country, so you are anti-socialism person, and then they send to the prison, uh, political prison camp or executions. But I had no choice because if I continued to live uh, lived in North Korea, could be died of starvation, and also my younger brother is a really dangerous way. You know, the military soldiers came to my house and they just look after my younger brother, and then all apartment and you know all areas always is look after my house when my younger brother came to my home. So. It was, we had no choice. Still, North Korea could be die or escape to North Korea. If we didn't success, we could be die. But if we success, we could be survivor. So that is only choice. 
So upon leaving North Korea, you did spend some time in China. And what was your experience living as a refugee, especially as a woman? I know you encountered some unique challenges that maybe some of the men you were with didn't experience as well. But uh, when I lived in North Korea, I never heard asylum seekers or refugees or immigrants because China also communist country is uh, the system is the same as North Korea. And also North Korea and the China government, they made another agreement, you know, the two countries. They never accept the poor country people as refugees. And also if someone escaped their countries and sent back to them, sent back to them their country. So, you know, the, in China life also really dangerous life and also slavery life too, because there's, you know, the many North Korean women and the girls escaped North Korea, but once in China, it's many smugglers in both areas, and they just is kidnapped to us and selling to the Chinese men or this is a brothers and ways and sex slavery. So life has the same as North Korea and China. It's never, I didn't know the, what is hope and human beings. I never knew that is both countries. And when did you learn about asylum after, you know, receiving asylum from the United Nations in 2008? Did you seek it out yourself? Yes, in 2008, we arrived in the UK and then, you know, the first time we heard that is asylum seeker, but only we didn't know the English meanings, but only translators told us is asylum seekers or refugees. So just only we knew the first time is in the UK in 2008. Right. So you encountered a lot of authoritarian governments, you know, in China and in North Korea. And then when you came to the UK, you joined the Conservative Party in 2017 in Britain. Can you tell us a little bit about that political journey? Um, I came to the UK 2008, but the first time I didn't speak any English. So I didn't know the what you mean is human rights or women's rights, you know, the, it's freedom meanings. I didn't understand the first time because it's a lack of communications and the lack of uh, is English skills. But then I uh, started learning my English and, and my started activities work. So I learned much more about that is abroad is the English people, American people, you know, the, all over the country, people teaching to me is the everything is the human right meanings. So in 2017, I joined the Conservative Party. The reasons that conservative values, you know, the first is the individuals and also freedom of happiness with family and is the justice and also the conservatives support the economics. Yeah. So that is all where I need in North Korea in China too, because it's the individual life is really important for me. So that's why I joined the Conservative Party in 2017. And your ideas sort of shifted during Brexit when refugees started coming into Europe. Can you tell us about that? Oh, you know, the, it's the, in 2015, when I visited the European Parliament and also European Council, so first time was shocking, you know, is that the European Parliament in the 27 countries joined in there and also another European rules, 
So every country is they accept the European rule before the they country rules. So I was shocking because United Kingdom is empowered country. You know, the, I learned that and I continue to believe that is United Kingdom is empowered country. But why they is the kind of works under the European country. So that is all my questions. And then 2016, uh, is the UK is leave Europe or, you know, that is they bought is a uh, is kind of elections. So I put that is leave Europe. But, you know, the many another is the human rights activities is a shock to me because you are human rights activities, but why you put the leave Europe? So why you don't is the stand up refugees, but leave Europe and stand refugees is different, different because United Kingdom is the already joined the United Nations and signed the United Nations refugees, you know, the articles, everything. So continue to work with the United Kingdom is work with the United Nations. We continue to accept the refugees. Meaning, because uh, leave Europe meanings, uh, Europe meanings, uh, leave Europe meaning is first to be is the security our countries first. Because if countries not strong, we are not allowed another people. So country is strong first, then we accept many many people. So that is a different meanings for me. So your view has changed a lot over the years, and it's just really interesting now that you're doing work with human rights uh, as it relates from the European Alliance to North Korea. What can we learn in the United States, if anything, from your work there about the United States' complicated relationship with North Korea? When I, when I lived in North Korea, United Nations was enemy countries. So, you know, the, my uh, child memory was uh, war games with my friend. So one team is North Korean soldiers and another team is American soldiers. <clears throat> but always is North Korean soldiers win one. Yeah, America is collapsed down. So that is my memory, and I really hated American person because I never met Americans. You know, when I lived in North Korea, but in the UK, you know, the here also mixed people. United is Britain people or American people, European people mixed here. So. When I met the original American person, and then you know, the my first question was that, "Are you dear is the American person?" So he said that yes, I am. <laughs> but so first person was really nice, and he always helped is the North Korean refugees and uh, speak about the human rights issues. So. That is really surprised for me. So I really love the American people, but sometimes it's, you know, the politics is really different. Politics is different because America also every five years they change the politics and also many politicians change different, you know, the is a subject is work with the North Korea. So sometimes I really angry, but I continued the work with the American people. Can you tell our viewers a little bit about the work you're doing now and where they can find more of your work? Um, uh, my activities work started in 2013. So when first I started my work, is uh, was that teaching English to refugees because it's the language is not only language. You know, the language is life. So 
myself lived in North Korea, we all North Korean people kind of is the language persecutions from government because North Korea language was only political language. We are not mentioned as personal language, exp uh, explained about the personal emotions or something that with each others. So in here, if we don't know that it's English, we continued, can't explain our emotions. So, so that is my first project was teaching English to refugees. And then, you know, the, I speak lots of universities and the schools, as also parliament, every, every country uh, speak about that is freedoms. Because it's many Western people, they always speak about that freedom is not free. They said that, but they don't understand what means that is freedom. Because freedom comes to us enormous risks. And we don't know that that is a success or uh, unsuccess our lifetimes if we don't fight a kind of evils. So everyday life is we are fighting, fighting and we uh, find our freedoms. Many people is forget about the freedom meanings. So I just is teaching to them freedoms and how democratic countries is this the precious country and how they lucky lives in democratic country. We're still trying hard to keep our democracy here in the United States. Really appreciate your perspective on all of this. If you want to read more, there's a great article by Christian Davies to our viewers uh, for the Financial Times, North Korean Exile, Jihin Park, The Pen Can Kill Innocent People, But It Can Also Kill the Devil. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you.